0: I just realized I might have just lost all credibility before coming up here this morning. <laughs> but hey, we are so glad that you are joining us. My name is Adam. We are on week two in this series in the book of James. We're calling this series Be Real because the overall idea of this book of the Bible is about living out a real, authentic faith in God. And last week, we talked about how our faith can be tested through the trials and the hard times in our lives, And if you missed that message and you want to get caught up, you can always go back and listen to that on the podcast. You can find that on um, Apple Podcasts or on the Bridgewater app. But this morning, I want to begin things with a question that I think all of us at some point or another have asked ourselves. And that's the question, how did I get here? That question that is often on our minds when we end up in a place that we don't want to be, and we know that somehow we are responsible for being in this place through our actions, and we're just asking ourselves, how did I get here? Maybe you feel like you just made a few little mistakes, and things in your life blew up, and you're asking yourself, how did I get here? Or you've got some secret sin or struggle in your life, and you told yourself that you could keep it under control, that you could stop at any time, and then it hit you that this actually has a hold on your life and you feel trapped, and you're asking yourself, how did I get here? Maybe over time, you've gradually become a kind of person that you didn't wanna be. You've hurt people that you didn't wanna hurt, and you wanna figure out how you got there so that you can make sure that never happens again. And even if you're not in a low point in life right now, I think that this morning's conversation from the book of James can still have a really big impact on your life because it's not just about uh, figuring out how we got to where we are now and retracing our steps, but it's about knowing that so that we don't end up there again. And so this morning, we're going to be tackling the question, how did I get here from James chapter 1, and we'll be in verse 13 to start. We'll also have it up here on the screen for you to follow along. And this gives us the first part to answering our question. It says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And so, If we are in a bad place in life because of decisions that we've made, we can't point our finger at God and be like, he tempted me to make these bad decisions, and he's the one who got me here. And some of you might be thinking, all right, I knew that. That's Sunday School 101. God doesn't tempt people. But last week, we talked about how God places trials and hard times in our lives. And if we were to just flip through the Bible we could find example after example of God testing his people. And one of the examples in the Old Testament is when the nation of Israel had escaped from Egypt and they were living in the wilderness and God was providing for their needs. And this verse says, Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will... Test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And the people that James was writing to, they probably knew Israel's history and these kinds of stories in the Bible. And so they could have pointed at a story like this and been like, see, look, God tempts people. And that's why James is trying to make a very clear distinction here between a test and a temptation. The way the ESV study Bible puts it is God tests his people so that their character can be strengthened. But he never lures people into sin. And this is so important for the way that we deal with temptation in our life. After all, if temptation did come from God, if he was trying to trip us up and get us to stumble, we couldn't look to God for help because he would be the one trying to trip us up. But the fact is that God does not tempt us. And so when we are facing temptation in our life, we can turn to God for help. And so if temptation doesn't come from God, where does it come from? And so we're going to unpack this a little bit more, starting in verse 14. It says, But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. So Temptation doesn't come from God, but it comes from our evil desires. And those desires can look different from person to person. It's those things that make us feel good. And even if you've been a Christian for a long time, even if you're older in age, it doesn't mean that you don't ever have this desire for things that you shouldn't have. And there's no point in our lives where we've graduated from being uh, under... The influence of temptation in our lives or being faced with temptation. The truth is that temptation is a reality that we can't escape. And that can sound really discouraging, but the good news is that it is not a sin to be tempted. Even Jesus was tempted. He was in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan visited him. And Satan told Jesus to look out at all the kingdoms of the earth. And he told Jesus that if he would just bow down to him, then he could give him the throne over all of these kingdoms. He was basically giving Jesus an out. Instead of going to the cross and dying for people's sins, he could just set up his own kingdom on earth. And all he had to do was bow down to Satan. But Jesus did not give in to that sin And it's not, or that temptation, it is not a sin to face temptation, but we sin when we give into that temptation. And here in this verse, James uses the words dragged away and enticed. And he's kind of painting a picture here of a fisherman or a trapper. Now, I really like fishing, but to be honest with you, I am not good at it. I probably catch more seaweed and tree branches than I do fish. But over the summer... I actually had some decent success with trapping animals in this kind of trap. I had this raccoon problem over the summer where they were getting into my trash cans and just like ripping things apart. And so I borrowed one of these traps from one of my buddies. And this is a really humane trap. It doesn't hurt the animal. You just put some bait in there and they walk in, step on the lever, and it closes the back door behind them and then they can't get out. And so I baited this trap with whatever I thought a raccoon would like. A corn cob. I'm like, if they like my trash, they'll like this corn cob. And when I was setting this trap, I had my dog with me, and I was keeping an eye on him. And then all of a sudden I'm like, Where did my dog go? And so I was looking around for my dog and I hear Row,ow,ow,ow. and I checked the trap. And and there he was. I don't even think he was enjoying the corn cob anymore. He's just like, where am I? Why can't I get out of here? And if you know my relationship with my dog, I was thinking, you know what? This is a teachable moment for the dog. I'll just leave him there. (laughs) And Gabby's like, no, you can't do that. So I let him out. And you would think that after walking into this trap that he would have learned his lesson after the first time. Well, a couple days later, I took him out to pee. And he didn't come back into the house. So I was like, where'd he go? Not the trap. And I checked. He just could not resist the nachos that I put in that trap for the raccoon. And so on a more serious note, I think a really important question for all of us is if Satan was setting a trap for you, what would he use for bait? Like, what is that desire within your heart that you are willing to try to fulfill even though you know you shouldn't have it or try to fulfill it in ways that you know that you shouldn't. And it's temptation that is just the first step in this negative cycle that can really ruin our lives. Let's keep on reading in verse 15. It says, Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, this is kind of a strange way to put it. But what James is doing here is he's kind of painting the picture of a family tree. Desire gives birth to sin. Sin gives birth to death. Death is the grandchild of desire. And maybe you're a little bit confused at how our desires can lead to death, or maybe you think that's a little bit extreme, probably even feels like an empty threat, and if you're a parent, you've probably given at least one empty threat to your kid before, right? Like you're, you're somewhere, and you tell your kid, all right, time to go. If you don't get ready, I'm going to leave without you, even though you know it's going to be a lot more work to come back for them later, and your kid probably knows that too. Like, they're not going to leave without me. Do, 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 do. They just keep doing their thing, because they don't take it seriously. And I think it's hard to be convicted by something or motivated by something that we don't understand or something that we don't take seriously. And I think that we could read a verse like this that's talking about death and be like, I don't know, that's confusing or sounds like an empty threat to me. And so I wanna take just a little bit of time now to unpack what this means. And the Greek word for death covers a broad range of meaning. And I think that the full range of meaning of this word is appropriate for the way that it's being used here. So death can refer to physical death. And I don't think it's out of the question to believe that some patterns of sin and destructive behavior can lead to physical death. And so instead of just brushing this off, I think we should take this with caution. This can also refer to spiritual death. And spiritual death is separation from God for the rest of eternity. It's the opposite of everlasting life and being with God in heaven when you die. And the way that we can experience everlasting life and be with God in heaven when we die is by placing our faith in Jesus for salvation and repenting of our sin. And to repent means a change of mind, a change of mind about our sin where we see our sin the way that God sees it and we recognize that it is wrong and it leads to a change in actions where instead of following after our sin, we're trying now to follow after the example of Jesus. And this doesn't mean that you're perfect and that you don't ever sin, but you're headed in the right direction following after Jesus. And I think it's appropriate to say that if you are caught up in a pattern of sin in your life, and you're just okay with that, and this has a hold on you, and you're just walking down that path, it might mean that you've never believed in Jesus for salvation and repented of the sin in your life. And it could mean that you are on a path that leads to spiritual death. And this is honestly a worse consequence than even physical death. And even if I'm off base about this, I think we can all agree that death is a heavy word. And at the very least, James here is talking about a really severe negative consequence. But there is good news. No matter where you're at this morning, if you're just struggling with temptation, maybe you give in more than you want to. Maybe you have this pattern of sin in your life. The good news is that temptation is a process that we can stop. And just based on the fact that you are sitting here in this room this morning, means that there is hope for you. That the last page of your story has not been written yet. And you can overcome temptation in your life. You can break free of the grip of sin in your life. And it is so worth it to do whatever it takes in order to gain that freedom, whether it's reading the Bible on a regular basis, talking to God in prayer, praying when you're tempted, making that commitment to come to church or get connected in a small group. Because I don't think that if we are Christians and at the end of our lives we're with God in heaven, that we would ever think to ourselves, wow, temptation was hard. I wish I didn't put up as much of a fight. That just wasn't worth it. Because in James chapter 1, verse 12, he kind of gives us this motivation, this boost of encouragement. He says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And I think that crown of life is referring to to heaven and everlasting life with God. And so, for all of us who love God and we're saved by the work of Jesus in our life, if we, as we persevere through these kinds of things, we will experience the glory of heaven where there's no more temptation, no more trials. And we'll just think to ourselves, that was all worth it. A little fun fact here is that the same word for trial here. The same word for trial in almost every case in James chapter 1 is also the same word that's translated as temptation. And temptation is really a trial that entices us to sin. And so I think that this can refer to temptations as well in our lives. And so how do we persevere through the trials and through the temptations? I think the answer to that is truth, that temptation is, is overcome by truth. Let's keep reading in verse 16. He says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. I think this goes back to what James was talking about earlier, that God is not the one who tempts us to sin. Actually, quite the opposite. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. Not just some gifts, not just some perfect gifts, every good and perfect gift. And among them, the gift of salvation is the best gift that God offers us. And so I don't think that we can say that God just wants to withhold good things in our lives. I think God doesn't want us to have the desires for things that we shouldn't have or go looking for the right things in the wrong places. I've heard it summarized before that God's, anything apart from God's best is second best at best. It means if you are looking to fulfill your desires outside of God, at the very best, you can only get second rate because God's best is the way to go. Even desires that aren't necessarily wrong, like intimacy, that's not a bad desire, but God's design for intimacy is for a husband and wife to love each other as Jesus loves us. But Satan wants to tell us that we can have intimacy through shallow relationships, from bouncing from person to person, fulfilling a kind of selfish love or giving in to pornography or the desire for acceptance. I think that God has wired this desire into all of us to be fulfilled In him and to have a community of people who can come alongside us in this journey of following after God. But Satan wants to tell us that we should look for acceptance within the world and do things that can gain us that acceptance that we normally wouldn't do. Things we don't even want to do. Things that we know that God doesn't want us to do. Or money. A lot of people think that money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the Bible actually says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. But Jesus also says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he will take care of all of your needs. I think Satan wants to tell us, seek first the American dollar, and that will give you happiness, even if that means putting your family on the back burner putting relationships behind you or not making church and community with other Christians a priority in your life. And anything apart from God's best is second best at best. And sin promises us life. Sin promises us that we can have our desires fulfilled by doing things apart from God's will and design. But in the end, sin only delivers death. And I don't know where you're at this morning. If you're facing temptation and you're really struggling, or if you're caught in a pattern of sin, and maybe you want to break free from that, but you don't know where to start, and it's like... Satan is just pouring guilt and shame on you, trying to keep you in this place of isolation because you're afraid that you can't come to God. You're afraid that you can't even tell somebody else what you're dealing with because you're afraid that they're going to judge you for it. And so you're getting more and more isolated, feeling more and more helpless. And you don't know where to turn or who to reach out to. This week I was reading this book called The Freedom Fight and i found this fictional story in there that i think really illustrates this point so this story takes place in a far away land a long long time ago in a world that is not this world and there was this great and terrible awful dragon that would terrorize the village he blows smoke and burn buildings down grab people up in his awful claws and carry them away and so the king and his sons and their armies, they would go on these hunts for this dragon, trying to put an end to their enemy. And one day, one of the king's sons was out riding in the woods all by himself. And he hears something whisper his name. So he looks around, and there's the dragon just kind of laying there on the ground. And he's at first like on his guard, he draws his sword and when he sees this enemy. But then the, the dragon kind of whispers to him, I'm not as bad as most people make me out to be. I just want to be your friend. I want to have your companionship and offer something to you. And so the king's son is like, well, what can you give me? The dragon says in a, like a purring voice, pleasure. Haven't you ever wanted to fly wouldn't you like to take a ride on my back and fly above the clouds and the king's son thought about this for a little bit he let his guard down after all the dragon didn't seem all that bad so then the dragon put down his wing and he climbed on the back of the dragon and woof they were off flying above the clouds and it was exhilarating it was so exciting to be on the back of this dragon But at the end of the ride, the dragon let him go. And he was thinking to himself, Ah, what have I done? I was just associating with the, the enemy. And if my father and my brothers knew, Oh, I can't go back. I can't do that. But then the next day, he was thinking about just how fun it was to ride on the back of this dragon. And so he went back into the woods, and there the dragon was. So he hopped on and they took off into the clouds. And it was a really enjoyable ride. And so this pattern went. And the more time that he spent with this dragon, the more he isolated himself, the less time he spent with his father and with his brothers. And there were times when he was just like racked with guilt, and he would make commitments to himself like, I am not going to ride that dragon anymore. I'm done. But then the desire would get the best of him, and he'd go out, and he would do it again. And one time, he was riding on the dragon, and the dragon swoops in on a village and starts blowing fire all over the place, snatching people up in his claws. The the king's son was terrified, and so he got off the back of the dragon, and he's watching all the damage that this dragon is causing, and he tries to run away. And somebody in the crowd calls him out, points to him, and says, I saw him riding the dragon. And so as he was running away, some guards came in and they grabbed him as if he was a criminal. And as he was being dragged away, he saw out of the corner of his eye his father, the king, holding a wounded person in his arms, covered in blood. And finally, he was taken to the court of the king. He was standing there in the midst of a crowd with his father sitting on the throne. And the people in the crowds were saying, we saw him with the dragon, banish him, punish him, end his life. And the king whose clothes was covered in blood walked up to his son and his son was just hanging his head down in guilt. He didn't even want to look at his father. He was ready for his father to just knock him to the ground because of this awful thing that he had done. But instead, his father opens wide his arms and embraces him. And then the king looks around the room and says, Come forward if you have also ridden the dragon. And then one of the other king's sons, who was known all throughout the land for having his life all put together and being a real stand up guy, he came forward. And then other people in the crowd also came forward who had ridden the dragon. And the king looked around at all of them, and he said, by yourself, you cannot resist this enemy, but together we can stand a chance and fight against him. I think that Satan wants us to just be so overcome with guilt and shame in our lives that we won't run to God, that we won't look to other people for help. He wants us to believe this idea that we are the only ones who have this sin or this struggle in our lives. Nobody else knows what that's like. Their lives all look put together and if they just knew what I was struggling with, then they would judge me for it and there's no way that I can come to God with my life the way that it is now. But last week, we read a verse about how Jesus as a human knows what it's like to go through pain and suffering. And there's also this verse here that talks about Jesus knowing what it's like to face temptation. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive not judgment, but his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. And when we think about the humanity of Jesus, Sometimes I tend to think that Jesus knows what it's like to feel pain, but he's he's God. He doesn't know what it's like to face temptation. But it says here that Jesus understands our weakness because he's been tempted too. And I think those times in our lives where we're facing temptation, we're just like, ah, This is so hard. Jesus knows what it is like to feel that way, too, and he wants you to run to him. God doesn't want us to just run away from temptation in our lives. He wants us to run to him, and I think that's the application for this morning, to run to God. I don't know exactly what that looks like for you. Maybe that means reading the Bible on a regular basis, praying to God throughout the day, not just having a routine set time to pray, but that conversation with God all throughout the day. And so especially in the moments when you're tempted, you can just pray to him or get connected in a small group and have a community of people to do life with and to just open up with about the things going on in your life, to have somebody to talk to, to talk to somebody who can help you. If you have this sin or struggle in your life, I don't think that you have to tell everybody, but tell somebody. Tell somebody who can help you. And maybe small groups is a good place to do that. Maybe it's just one or two people within the group. And I know that some things are really hard to talk about. And you just you don't want anybody to know what you're facing. Like I imagine if, that it's not really a shot in the dark to say that there's some of you here this morning who struggle with pornography and you're not gonna talk about that in small group. Maybe you're just working up the courage to talk to somebody else about it. But even with that being the case, I really want to be able to help you. And this book, where I got uh, the story about the dragon. It's called The Freedom Fight. It's a really helpful resource on this. And if you're looking for a place to start and you would read a book like this, I'm not going to make you come forward and grab this book. But here's my personal cell phone number. And if you are interested in any kind of resources or you're looking for help, if you just text me your name and your address... I will ship this book right to your house, no questions asked. I'm not going to ask you a bunch of interrogating questions about how you're really doing unless you want to have a conversation with me. I'll just leave it at that. I'll ship this book right to your house. This isn't, I'm not going to take all these names and, and use them as prayer requests in a group or anything like that. I won't show it to anybody else. And this morning, I just want to wrap up with praying. And as we pray, I want to ask that you would please close your eyes and bow your heads. And if you want to take me up on this offer and shoot me a text, you can go ahead and put my number in your phone while we're praying. Nobody else is going to be looking around. This is just between you and God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you don't tempt us I thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from you and that all of our desires can be perfectly fulfilled in you. And I know that so often I get distracted by the things that this world offers. Sometimes I think that what sin offers me is better than what you say is best. And I just ask that you would give us discerning minds uh, and just keep that reminder that Satan is trying to deceive us with our desires and get us to stumble. Satan doesn't want to give us good and perfect gifts. He just wants us to experience death. And God, I thank you that in our weakness, we are not alone. I thank you that in our weakness, we have each other, that the church can be a hospital for the sick, not just a museum for people who have it all together. And I ask that we would take advantage of that, that we would be open about what's going on in our lives so that we can experience healing. And I thank you for the example of Jesus, and we can know that he understands our weakness as well. But in every way, he was the perfect example, and he did not give in to temptation. Please help us to follow that example. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.